Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. Ever since uh, we had our first time to to close our in-person services and to go online, every morning I have been waking up very early, praying for each and every one of you, for you, your families, for your work. And I've been I've been asking the Lord in the midst of this pandemic, Lord, what are you doing? And especially as we saw even other things come to the, to the surface, racial injustice, social uh, instability, all kinds of things that started to happen. I was, Lord, what are you doing? And, and, and this has been one of the clear things that he has said to me over the course of this year of spending hours of each day in prayer for you and studying the word and then sharing it on Facebook Live is the Lord says, I am allowing an exertion of pressure so that the refiner's fire can purify the imperfections and the impurities that are in each of us because it takes an external pressure to really start to see where your impatience is, where your, your lack of faith, where your, where your real issues are, not the superficial issues, but the deeper values, the deeper belief systems that we hold to that are just based on lies. But the second thing I ask the Lord is, Lord, what are you gonna do with this? And he keeps saying to me over and over again, this very real thing from his word that he never wastes our sorrows but that he's building something that only he can build and using these circumstances in our lives to build something to the glory of his name. And so I felt him lead me as we begin 2021 to Romans chapter 12, where the apostle Paul is talking about building a Christian community in a very oppressive world. And I want you to read with me As we look at chapter 12, these verses, beginning at verse 3, I believe we're going to read through verse 8. I like it when you read out loud with me. I love to hear the church read God's word. So let's read together. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So what Paul is saying when we begin to build Christian community, but even more so in some ways what he's saying about you as you build a life in Christ is he says that there should be something so distinct about your life that everyone who knows you knows that you're a Christian. Everyone knows that there's something so distinctive about you that it is, it is known by all. Now, when we look at the people that, that Paul was writing to, we begin to see that things have not changed all that much. Paul was writing to Christians who were a minority in a Roman world, and the Roman world was controlled. The Roman world was dominated. There was oppression. And here in the church, there was the reflection of the many levels and cultures of that society. 
There were very religious Jewish people who had come to faith in Jesus. There were Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ, and they had come from a background of hating each other, of looking down on one another. Gentiles saw Jews as, as almost like atheists because they only had one God. Jews saw the Gentiles as unclean, unfit, even somewhat subhuman. And, and in the midst of this fellowship, there were economic disparities. There were masters and there were slaves worshiping together. There were, there were the, the former separations of a male-dominated society versus now women and children who were, who were seen as equal members of the fellowship. Everything about what Paul is writing is revolutionary. Everything that he's writing about is not about trying to make the external circumstances of your life easier. It's about stealing your own soul so that you can overcome whatever you face. And the idea here is that Paul was saying something has changed at the very basis of who you are. And one of the things that he's saying is that you now are not just citizens of Rome, or nor if you're citizens of Rome, are you a lesser person? If you're not a citizen, you're not a lesser person. Because he says, now you have a greater citizenship. Your citizenship, your allegiance is no longer to any earthly nation or any earthly kingdom. Your citizenship is in heaven. Basically what he's saying is this. What's true of heaven needs to be true in your life. And that people should see what heaven is by just looking at your life. <laughs> Are you sorry you came today? <laughs> Would you look at someone, at, at least someone who's six foot away from you or whatever, okay? Would you look at them? Would you point your finger at them for me? Come on. Let them know you're looking at them. <laughs> All right? You may not want to say this, but I'm going to ask you to say it for my sake, all right? You are no longer, primarily, a citizen of the U.S. You are, say it again, you are a citizen of heaven. What is true of heaven should manifest in your home. What is true of heaven should manifest at your work, your school, wherever it is. People should be able to distinguish that you have a citizenship that is not earthly bound. When we respond to matters on earth like earthly citizens, we are forgetting our citizenship. We are forgetting our allegiance but more than that, we're forgetting where our resources come from. We will not overcome without being those who are born of God. But those who are born of God must overcome. Come on, that, that's straight up, right? I, I see people all the time saying, I'm an overcomer. I'm like, what have you overcome? You've run away from every battle. You're angry, you're fearful, you're worried to death. You've not overcome, it's overcome you. So either I am a citizen of heaven, or I won't overcome. Because there are not enough resources here on earth for you to overcome. Even if everything went your way, you have no idea what's coming your way. All right, this one, this is going to be heady stuff for a minute. The Bible says there's an old humanity, and the Bible says there's a new humanity. It says the old humanity is based on biology. So anyone who is biologically connected to Adam, the first human, is an old humanity. But the only way to escape the curse of the old humanity and the destination of the old humanity, which is extinction, 
is to be wrenched from it and to be born again by the spirit of the one who has created a new humanity. So when you think about yourself, not only are you citizen of heaven, you are the new humanity that Christ is creating, which is being made in conformity to his own likeness. But isn't it an incredible thing when you recognize me? I'm a part of God's plan for a new humanity which restores the original design and purpose and creation of the original humanity? Do you understand? We're not just going off to heaven to live in the clouds with flimsy little nightgowns and harps to play. We will live as humans were supposed to live in a new heaven and a new earth. Do you understand? Everything that's going on in your life now will correspond to the completion you will enjoy in the world to come. And you are a part of that. And when I think about that, I go, how is it that God could pick People as us. And I look around the room and I go, God, how did you pick this group? <laughs> and you should say that as well. You're like, Lord, you're kidding me. I can understand how I'm part of the old humanity. But you've made me a part of the new humanity. I mean, think about the old humanity. The old humanity is competitive. My family has to be better than your family. My work has to be better than your work. You can't get the honor. I have to get the honor. Isn't that basically what goes on in racism and all the different things? My family, my race, my culture has to be better than your race, your culture, your family. It all starts at the biological level. It's only in a new humanity that we begin to realize there's not a scarcity of resources, there's an abundance of resources. See, in the old humanity, it's like eating pie at the house I grew up in. My mother had to pre-slice it so that we each got our piece. And if anybody got a bigger piece, all hell would break loose. Why does he get the big piece? And I would go, because I'm bigger than you. But it didn't matter. No one had a right to a bigger piece. Now, we did barter with my little sister to see if we could get her piece. <laughs> but the idea was there was only so much pie. And either you got your share or you got somebody else's share. But there was only so much to go around. That's the old humanity. Come on, this is somewhat brilliant right now, all right? You understand? That's the fighting. I want, but there's not enough. You have what I want. I mean, don't you ever, maybe you don't, maybe I just feel this, but I see people, you know, when I'm at the store, particularly for some reason, the marshals in Nanuet, and I want to beat everybody to the line because the line snakes out the door sometimes, it seems like. You know, I'm, I'm seeing this little old lady starting to trundle up, and I'm thinking, how can I beat her to the line? <laughs> or I'm at the grocery store. I'm trying to figure out which line is the quickest. Yeah. I count everybody's items. <laughs> I look at the cashier to see, is that a fast one or a slow one? <laughs> Does this one converse with people or not? Does this one stay on her job? I know it's kind of silly, but I'm trying to make this point real to you. The old humanity says, I got to get to the front of the line. The old humanity says, I got to get there before you get there. And then it divides along lines, whether it's color of skin or culture or nation. And what Paul is trying to get us to see is we're not part of that anymore. That you are you and I are just as much a part of this new humanity as all the believers in China, as all the believers in Russia, as all the believers in the Middle East. 
that we're the new humanity and it doesn't look like anything that's ever been before. And for some reason, God trusted this new humanity to us, to you. That's what, are you hearing me? That's what he's building. And if you miss it in this time by seeing all the pressures on the outside, if you miss it by seeing all the ways things are failing, the old humanity is failing. But friends, it must fail. Because it must be revealed that it doesn't work that way. This may be a harsh or or stark kind of a statement. But the fact that you can die in this world shows you you were not designed for this world. There is something more. This is the beginning, not the completion. But we have to live as those who see it that way or every time we're disappointed, we'll be crushed. Instead of saying, no, that's not where my hope is. That's not where my security is. If you are someone who is working for racial justice, you will be working for it till Jesus returns. Because all that ever happens is one group flips power for another group. In the old humanity, because humans apart from God don't know what justice is. And sometimes the only thing we can do is at least try to stop the injustice. But as far as justice, humans have a very funny feeling about what's fair, and it's usually what's fair for me. Okay, I know I've left preaching and gone to meddling. Here's what Paul says. He says, don't be molded by that old humanity. Do not let your life be conformed to that. And how is God working? God is working against that old conformity. And he is passionate to conform you as a Christian to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is every resource of God in your life, even the things you don't understand. Everything in your life is being pressured to bring you into a place where you're willing to let go the old things and to become a person in the likeness of Jesus. This is the passion of God. If you resist his passion there, he won't stop. You might slow it down some, but he will keep at it because until Christ returns or you go home to be with Jesus, the passion of God in your life is to conform you to the likeness of his son. Everything that Paul has to say in all of these passages is saying that everything is in your life is to increasingly become Christ-like. So here's, here's a way to look at this. Under pressure, under a loss of control or a feeling like I don't know what's going to happen, the secret closets of your life get revealed. And the corners, the dark corners of your life have light shining on them. And the question is, will you let the closets be opened and cleansed? Will you let the light shine in those corners and deal with what's there? Or will you resist? Those closets and the corners where you have not given God access are the most important places for your growth. Anywhere where you have said, God, you can have this, but not this, is the access point for the serial killer of your soul. I have I, often had people come in for counseling and asked if they could come and I've often had them come in and say we're going to set some ground rules about this counseling to me now I have a sarcastic mind so immediately I go I think you asked me 
to counsel you, and I do think this is my office. So I think I will be laying down the ground rules. But here's what they'll usually say. We can't talk about this. And you know what I say? Then there's nothing else to talk about. Because that's the only thing that matters. When you have an area that you said, Lord, I can't trust you here. That's the only area that matters. I can't go back to that memory. I can't rehearse what happened to me here. I can't tell you what I'm thinking about this because it would be embarrassing or hurtful or whatever. Then that's the access point. So what does God do? He brings pressure or allows pressure on your life where you finally say, Lord, have it all. Have whatever I have kept hidden. Because, you see, he's relentless. He is not put off by your being angry with him or being scared of him or you being ashamed of yourself. He's not put off by any of those things. If the cross would not put Jesus off, then your closets will never put him off. Gosh, I've got to write that one down. <laughs> Are you tracking with me in this? I'm saying to you, don't waste this season. In my 62 years of life, I've never seen something that was affecting the whole world at once. I don't even think World War I or World War II was worldwide. In this sense, everybody's affected. Even people who pretend there is no coronavirus are affected. God is up to something. Don't waste it. Don't resist it. What do I mean by this? Don't look at the negative things that are coming out of you in this time and say, well, that's not really me. Or what I hear some people saying is, once this is over, I'll be fine. Friends, that's you saying you're not responsible for what you feel or how you act. You're making a virus responsible for you. Are you making a government responsible for you? Are you making other people responsible? As long as you give the responsibility of your conformity to Christ to somebody else, you will never conform to Christ. It's when you go, Lord, in the midst of this, this pandemic in the midst of, of all this social unrest and un injustices that we're seeing, I'm, I am feeling anxious. And then you see, now you say, here's the corner. My anxiety has shown me a corner where I don't trust you. My anxiety has shown me a corner where I've believed a lie that I have to be in control or I've believed a lie that I have to have the government that I want or I have to believe the lie I have the economy that I want. But what you're saying by that is my security is not in you, Lord. My security is in my circumstances. My security is in people. And even if in some ways in the course of this, this year that has been so unprecedented for us, even if in the course of it your concern has been more for others than for yourself, you're still manifesting that you believe you have better intentions for people than God does. That if God, you know, would lead your family like you would, they wouldn't have to go through this. Or if God would lead the nation like you would lead it, then we wouldn't see what we're seeing. At some point, you've got to look at your negative emotions and begin to say, these are speaking to me about areas, closets, and corners where I haven't trusted him. For me, this has been a very telling year. I'll just, I have never felt more fearful I have never felt more distressed. And it's, it really hasn't been about me. As I pray for our, our particularly in those first couple of months, praying for particular people who were on front lines with the health crisis, and they were telling me about the deaths that they were seeing, and they were telling me about all the infectious cases that they were around. It was people I loved, and every morning I got up at 4 o'clock and just would pour out my heart to God for them. 
I didn't feel scared for me. But I felt so helpless to protect people in our congregation. And I felt for our church because we couldn't meet together. And I felt, you know, I felt even though I, every day I was sharing uh, scripture and, and teaching on the scriptures that I felt was appropriate to our situation, even so, it wasn't one-on-one -on -one contact. It wasn't person-to-person -person contact. It felt like I was shooting arrows in the dark. But here's what I knew, is God was using that to say, Mike, can't you trust me? Even for those you love, for those you feel responsible for, for those that you care about, don't you know I love them more than you? And he was, he was teaching me to let the true pastor pastor. He's the good shepherd. Anything that I can do is nothing more than an under-shepherd to the good shepherd. But he was using that pressure because he was showing me how much control I like. How much I like to have my hands in things. And he said, you got to take your hands off it. Am I making sense to you in this? And so every day, and I... I've taken a couple of breaks, but every day I've never spent so much time in prayer or in his word as I have in this past year. I have so flooded Facebook with my, my voice. <laughs> I've overexposed myself. But I've just said, Lord, I can't get through this without your word, so I'm gonna give your word to your people. And then I said, the results are up to you. You understand, it's not a terrible thing when he reveals the closet or when he shows you the corner. He's saying, I want all of you. I remind you from last week, Paul says, God doesn't want you to make sacrifices. He wants you to be the sacrifice. But it's not about performance then. Haven't you noticed that you can change your behavior and not change your heart? Paul says everything is about transformation. And Paul says this. This is what he's teaching. He says more and more that we grow in holiness as we grow in likeness to Jesus. It's this renewal of our minds and a renewal of our affections towards God and Christ. He's never looking to just give you information without it turning into affection for your God. And, and, and this is why, you see, this is why the transformation piece is so important because you could see that something you're doing is displeasing to God and you'll stop doing it, but you're stopping doing it because you fear the punishment of displeasing God. So instead of doing what you're doing because you love God and you trust God, you're doing it because you're afraid of God and you're afraid of punishment and consequences. If you operate out of fear, you're not operating out of love because perfect love casts out fear. And so God didn't say, fear me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He said, love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So when you only change something because you're afraid of the punishment, you have not changed anything except the behavior. And a lot of us regretfully grew up with a Christianity that was little more than behavior modification and some measure of sin management so that how we looked was more important than what we actually felt. I am saying to you, that's why I'm saying in the pressure, the emotions come up. You look at your impatience. You look at your anger. You look at the feelings of out of controlness that it is, and you say, Lord, these are only symptoms. I need to renew my mind, because if I believe the truth, then it will evidence itself in the emotions and the behavior. But if I'm believing a lie, it will also evidence itself in the emotions and the behavior. And so, in every sphere of our life, the Holy Spirit is pursuing a curriculum of the Father. 
to conform you to the likeness of Christ. This new humanity will look like Jesus, not the first Adam. And so Paul is, is anxious that you and I would bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus, into every area of our life. It, it, this is, in the end, this is really what this is talking about. If God, knowing full well what a sinner you are, chose you in love to be this new humanity, then in everything that he's doing in your life, he has a good plan for you. If we remember who we were, I was so evil, Christ had to die for me. But I'm so loved, Christ chose to die for me. Jesus was willing to be treated in the way that I deserve so that now he wants to treat me in the way he deserves. But in order for that to happen, there has to be a transformation in me to receive grace, to receive mercy, to receive love. And part of that transformation is he has to squeeze up all of my shame and my guilt and my impatience and my fear and my control issues. And instead of me suppressing and denying them, I, I cooperate with them and say, God, I'm going to renew my mind. When I see control, I'm going to look for the fear that's making me controlling. When I see control, I'm going to look for the shame that makes me hide and makes me pretend like I'm somebody I'm not. When I'm angry, I'm going to look for the goal or the outcome or the result that I'm trying to get that other people are blocking. And I'm going to ask myself, why do I have that goal? Why do I have that drive? Why do I have that desire? Because something is blocking it, which is showing me I've got an ungodly goal. If you want to be a Christian, you're going to have to be a thinking Christian. Because as a person thinks, so that person is. And if you're unwilling to be a thinking Christian, then you're not going to be conforming yourself. You're going to be resisting the conformity to Christ. Look at what Paul does. He talks about thinking. How do I think about myself? Well, I'm, I think about myself as a person being transformed. Being transformed by the renewing of my mind in regard to my own self-image. <laughs> Paul says basically the way you think is you begin to know who you are in Christ. And if you know who you are in Christ, Paul says you will think clearly, even about yourself. Now, he uses this verb, think, over and over and over again in this passage. In other words, you can't build a Christian life for yourself or others if you won't think. Paul says think, and then he says think, and then he says think again. But here's what he says that, that, that convicted me and also I felt like it was incredibly illuminating. He says, but the problem with most Christians is we hyperthink about ourselves. He says we are hyper-minded when it comes to self. And what he means is we've got to be transformed by the renewing in our minds so that our self-thought is now healthy. And he uses a description. He calls it, think about yourself with sober judgment. So the illustration is, if a person is intoxicated, they are dangerous. And what we see right now is we are intoxicated with self. What's in it for me? Even when we are talking about identity and self-image and self-esteem, it is always about how can I make myself feel better about myself? We are obsessed with self. The goal isn't just to feel better about yourself. It's to get out of being drunk with ourselves. I mean, think about when... When people are intoxicated, they're dangerous. Their senses are impaired. Their balance is off. We don't want them behind the wheel of a car. We don't want them operating heavy machinery because they cannot be trusted. And Paul says, by nature, we are intoxicated with ourselves. How do you know that? Well, 
Think about this. When we obsess, even as we do in hard times, Lord, will my needs be met? Lord, can I get my desires and my dreams fulfilled? I've got some really important goals to meet today. I've got a schedule to keep. And we began to think, oh, well, I have all these good things. And, and, and Paul says, when you're hyper-minded about yourself, you're drunk on self. One of the great ways to see this is many people write a to-do list. And I've met many people who come into me utterly depressed about their ability to complete all the things on their to-do list. I remember this one man who was a very successful man, but would end every day in depression because he put 10 things on the list and he only got five done. And every night he would go, you are such a failure. Do you understand? He was drunk on self. Come on, I can save you some counseling time right now. And many of you are like, yeah, but I just got to push myself. You drunk, you. <laughs> and it all looks so much prettier than substance abuse. But Paul is saying, you've got to have sober judgment. And sober judgment is that you realize you don't have sober judgment. Anyone who is intoxicated loses the sense of their self, and so they think this is the way it's supposed to be for everybody. And when people have this kind of loss or proportion, they don't even know, generally, that they're drunk. I mean, I've been around numerous drunks, and they said, I'm not drunk. <laughs> I'm tipsy. <laughs> Which is a euphemism for, I'm drunk. But you see, they don't want to admit they're drunk. If you have a constant craving for self-esteem, you're intoxicated. If you are constantly anxious and worried, I'm not talking about sometimes anxious, sometimes worried. I'm talking about, no, you have this kind of settled in thing about, I've got something to worry about. I need to be responsible. I need to be anxious about this or else it's not going to be done. Then you're drunk. If you are so angry that you lose it in your car at the things people do driving, which they're always going to do around here, then you know you're not sober right now. Oh, come on now. See, you've got to realize that God has given your emotions as a smoke alarm. When the emotions go off, there's a fire. But you don't turn off the smoke alarm. You go find the fire. But what, I, what you and I have done is we've turned on the smoke alarm. I shouldn't feel this way. Or we've gone with the feelings. Do you understand? A drunkenness can be seen in your emotional and spiritual state when you're anxious. Because you're saying... I could run this world better if God would just do it my way. If God would just do my family, my job, my health this way, then, then it would be better. And that is drunkenness. That's intoxication. When you get so angry and you're like, I'm, I'm not going to forgive. I'm going to stay in this place of bitterness. I'm going to be unforgiven. When you say that, then you're saying there's something about you that's better than everybody else which is the antithesis or the opposite of the gospel because the gospel says we're all equally sinners. But suddenly you're not. You're the only one who has sound judgment, which actually means you're intoxicated. Because many drunks think they see perfectly when they're drunk. There's nothing wrong with what I'm saying. I've even seen people who had prescription drugs. I remember this one guy, he had... He had a terrible uh, back injury, and they gave him Percocet. And it kind of made him loopy. But he started doing marriage counseling to a couple he never met before, because he was a pastor. 
And he started doing marriage counseling and he's just saying all this stuff off the top of his head. Just and we asked him the next day, did you even remember what you said? No. I said, well, it was bad. But he was so confident while he was saying it. Am I, am I getting the point across? But here was, is what Paul is saying. You can see the indicators. You can go after the fire instead of the smoke alarm. And you can renew your mind in such a way that you begin to see a forgetfulness about yourself. See, the goal isn't that you become more aware of yourself. The goal is that you settle your own heart so that you can get forgetful so that there's space in your heart for what Jesus wants to do with you. Any intoxicated person cannot be entrusted with the heart of another person. So as long as everything is about self, you're not seeing clearly. But when you see clearly, you start having space to actually love and to serve and to give like never before. That's what Paul's saying. Now, I just want to hit this part. I need to do this kind of quickly, but on the one side is the driven person, but on the other side, there is a equal intoxication with self that manifests as false humility. And, and this is an equal kind of self-obsession it's just obsession with the negative. So this person is so convinced of their faults and their failings that they cannot enjoy or appreciate or even learn from anyone else. So what do you do when people affirm you? What do you do when people are trying to appreciate you? I've seen this numerous times in church where I'll say to someone, I, I, you know, it, in some ways it's easier. I don't, I don't say to the guys, man, that's a great sports jacket or whatever. But sometimes uh, some of the ladies, I'll say, oh, you look so lovely today in that dress. Oh, this old thing, they say. I've had this for 20 years. I don't look good. Look, I'm a mess. I'm a total mess, they'll say. I'm like, holy cow, let me just slap you upside the head a little bit. Nah, I never do. I got to quit saying that. <laughs> but the, I, see, what they've, what they've done is they've said, I have too many faults and failings. I can't receive anything good. I can't let that in. Because I'm self-obsessed. Because I'm intoxicated with self. <laughs> it's funny in the Christian church, people are always trying to be humble, but it usually ends up as a false humility. So you say to a singer or, or somebody that's blessed you and you say to them, man, that, was, that song so blessed me. And I've heard this over and over again. It wasn't me, it was Jesus. I've heard two answers that I like. One is, did Jesus just push you out of the way and take the microphone? <laughs> but my favorite's this one. No, it wasn't Jesus. If it had been Jesus, it would have been a lot better. Come on, that's fun. Sometimes you've got to poke the intoxication. You've got to poke it a little bit. C.S. Lewis, Lewis tells a great illustration of this point. Some people think they have no significance whatsoever. And so they, they posture themselves as nothing and nobodies. And he tells the story of this lady in the church and someone came up to her and said, would you like a cup of tea? I'd love to make you a cup of tea. And the lady said, oh, no. Oh, you shouldn't do that. I am not worth the trouble. Oh, you shouldn't go out of your way for me. But if you're going to make a cup of tea, make sure it's this hot. Make sure it has this much sugar in it. Make sure that it has just a splash of milk, not too much, because it will make it not hot enough. You understand? All that was just in a mask. It's just a lie. I'm not worth anything. I'm not worth, I'm nobody. It's basically saying, I'm the most important person in the world. I'm obsessed with myself. So what we find quite often is that the reason that you or I are not getting answers to our prayers 
is because we're asking God to keep giving us more substances for our intoxication. We're asking God, who is the end in himself, to become the means to our ends, which is our idolatry. So when you are self-intoxicated or self-obsessed, you're asking God to be your assistant and he will not give success to your idol, even if your idol is you. See, what's being asked here is so powerful. The gospel grammar is is in this passage, it says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. It says, let God remold your mind from the inside out. Be transformed. Here's what God is asking of you. It's It's really a powerful concept. He says, be transformed. In other words, he's asking you to do something that can only happen if it's done to you. Come on, that you got to get this. Being transformed, he isn't saying transform yourself. He's saying receive transformation. You can't transform yourself. You have to put yourself in position where you said, Lord, I'm done with my intoxication with self. I'm believing you. I'm believing who I am in you. One of my favorite things is to realize that you and I have an identity that we don't perform for. It's an identity we don't earn. It's an identity we receive. But here's the thing that gets to me is what Paul is saying, and we're going to look at it more next week, but what Paul is saying is you and I have a common identity. Not that the identity itself is common, but it's shared. How in the world did we as a church ever think that there was one race or one culture that was greater than another or one race or one culture that was lesser than another when this earth suit is temporary? We're, I, our true identity, who we are in Christ, will survive death and will last for all eternity. And anyone who is in Christ has that same identity. And to have structured our organizations to exclude those who look different or come from different backgrounds, who are richer or poorer, is to totally miss what Jesus is building. He's building a new humanity and you're part of it. And your identity is settled now. Here's a little hymn that I want to close with. Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. The changes that are sure to come, I do not fear to see. I ask thee for a present mind intent on pleasing thee. I would not have the restless will that hurries to and fro, seeking for some great thing to do or secret thing to know. I would be treated as a child and guided where to go. See, discovering your true self leads to a certain self-forgetfulness for who you are in Christ is who you really are. Ashley. Will you just stand with me as we close together? I love how Pastor Mike presented this as something that we need to receive. But the reality is, is that when we receive something, there is an actual active step on our part. When someone gives you a gift, you have to unwrap it. When someone gives you a gift in order to actually enjoy it, you have to interact with it. And so the action step that the Father is asking today is, would you be committed to renewing your mind? Would you, as the people of God, commit today to be someone who will renew your mind? 
And now I, I wish there was one simple prayer that I could pray and we would leave this place and our minds would be renewed, but I think that God is asking us to do a little homework. And so the way that we do that is we, we have to be willing to look at the places in our lives where we've believed lies about ourselves, lies about what we deserve, what we're owed, the way that we cope with situations, the way that we take in identities that never belong to us. And so would you, as the people of God, step into this new humanity that you've received and be willing to renew your mind? Would you be willing this week, even today, as you get in your car, when you turn off the stream, to take a look at the places in your life that need to be renewed? Would you look at those lies and break them in the name and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the active step. You have been given the authority to break the lies and step into the identity that the Father has given you. And not for your own sake, but for the sake of the world, for the sake of the humanity that God has been creating. Let's pray together. Father, I know that there are places in my own life that I have believed lies about, lies about how I have to get through situations about what I need to muster up in myself to overcome. But Father, I recognize today that those are lies and I break them in the name and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I receive this gift of transformation. I step into it. I say that I will be someone that is committed to renewing my mind for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of the world. Father, I thank you that you have given us the authority to break the lies that we've believed. And so this week I ask that you would begin to reveal the areas and the places in our lives that we need to go after, that we need to speak the truth over. We step into our identity, into our calling, into all that you have for us. And we declare that we are your citizens, that we are citizens of heaven, that we do not belong to this place, but we belong to you. Do whatever you want to do in us so that you can do whatever you want to do through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.